And uh, let's read it together. Today's reading is taken from Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 14, and can be found on the page one, uh, sorry, 901 in the Church Bibles. That's 901. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. In the first year of Balthazar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the substance of this dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me, were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever what was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was, like, was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. 
The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision that night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Super. Thank you, Jenny. And uh, so, as you can tell, it's a bit of a weird and wonderful passage. So let's pray again. Lord, open the eyes of our heart. Amen. Amen. So uh, if you've got one of, the, uh, one, of, one of the booklets and want to follow along, you can. So this morning, we are drawing to a close our short five-week series, Exploring Life in Exile. We started a month ago looking at the first couple of chapters of uh, Peter's first letter, in which he describes the Christians he's writing to as exiles or resident aliens on earth. And since then, we've looked at a few different stories from the book of Daniel to help us think about the, both the challenges and the opportunities of living as exiles among a people who don't share our God, our faith, our values. And one of the themes that we've noticed along the way is the need for spiritual depth. The tree that stands strong in the gale isn't necessarily the tallest, but the one with the deepest roots. So you go to places like Iran and you'll see that superficiality just isn't an option. Either the church goes deep or it dies. So far, the stories we've looked at from the book of Daniel have shown us that to be God's faithful people in exile means to be in the world but not of the world, that we'll need to choose costly conviction over cheap compromise, and that when we embrace the cost of conviction, it provides us with a fantastic opportunity of showing just how wonderful we think God is. And so today, as we look at this, frankly, rather confusing passage from Daniel chapter 7, uh, we're going to see a different aspect of life in exile, namely the need for proper perspective or for a kingdom vision. So in, in Romans chapter 12, Paul calls on us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I think that's what's going on here. Daniel is being taught to see the world differently. So Daniel sees a, a vision of a vast sea, whipped by strong winds, out of which emerge four strange, terrifying beasts, one after another, representing four empires that would emerge out of the earth in the years to come. Uh, twice in the following verses, uh, in, in the verses following uh, the end of our passage, in verse, verses 15 and 28, we're told that Daniel was disturbed and troubled by what he saw. He was granted a heaven's eye view of history. And while the story that we read kind of ends well, the journey there is a sobering one. And in summary, I think we can boil down Daniel's vision to three key truths. First, we're in a battle. Second, that the battle's already been won. And third, that God's kingdom is the ultimate 
reality. So let's look at them one at a time. The, the picture of world history that Daniel sees isn't a particularly rosy one. The sea uh, in the ancient Hebrew imagination isn't a place for a nice holiday. It's a wild, dangerous, creation-undoing chaos. And so when Daniel sees four strange beasts coming up out of the sea, it's not a Saturday afternoon trip to the Sea Life Center. It's a picture of monsters emerging from this chaos realm to wreak havoc. And the various animals depicted in Daniel's dream are symbolic images of the animal-like ferocity of the empires that they represent. And so the point of, point of these visions is clear. There will be forces of evil let loose on the land. Empires that resemble wild animals with no moral compass except their own lust for power and domination. So the first beast Daniel sees is this strange combination of a lion and an eagle. Now, don't get caught up trying to picture the thing. The point is what it represents. A fearsome combination of lion-like strength and eagle-like splendor. A lot of scholars think that this first monster is meant to be a picture of Babylon itself, the, the empire that Daniel is living in at that time. And interestingly, it's the only one of the four uh, beasts that has anything human about it. So in verse 4, it says that the mind of a human was given to it. Then you get the second one. The second animal is like a bear, representing the, the Persian Empire, which followed the Babylonian Empire. The third animal is a leopard with wings, which fits well as a symbol for the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great and his successors, who was uh, revered for conquering country after country with lightning speed and ferocity. And then the fourth beast is like no other that goes before it. Whereas the others are likened to animals that we know, lions, eagles, bears, leopards, this one is simply called a beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. We're told it has iron teeth. It crushes its victims underfoot. We're told it has ten horns before another eye-covered horn with, big with a big mouth rises up, displacing three of the former horns and boasting about its brilliance. And so many scholars think that this last, most surreal of all of the beasts is meant to be a symbol of Rome, a killing machine unlike any other that the world had yet seen. And so the point of all of these kind of hybrid beasts is to underscore the reality of human evil and that the world is a hostile place for the people of God. There is a war going on for our souls. Christians living in places like Somalia or Sudan, well, they understand that only too well. They know and experience up close and personal the iron teeth of those regimes that hate Jesus and his followers. In the present day, many believers live in daily fear of losing their homes, their freedom, even their lives for naming the name of Jesus. So read Daniel 7 with Christians in China 
And I'm sure that they probably wouldn't have any difficulty recognizing the beast-like nature of the world around them. For many of us Christians in the West, however, the image of the life of faith as a battlefield or a battleground will probably sound a lot more foreign and probably a lot more disturbing. And yet the battle is no less real here than in somewhere like China or Iran, but it does take a different form. So uh, Open Doors helpfully discerns different kinds of persecution that believers might face in different places around the world. There's, on one end of the spectrum, you've got what they call the smash approach. Uh, and they are kind of obvious acts of violence aimed at stamping out the Christian faith. So think kind of North Korea. You know, you're going to get arrested, you're going to get killed for following Jesus. But then the other end of the spectrum is the squeeze approach. Uh, which is often a lot more subtle uh, and occurs when societies or cultures exert so much pressure in a number of different areas of life, whether it's private, family life, community life, national life, that the working out of your faith becomes harder and harder. So uh, last year, uh, I went to to Malaysia uh, with Open Doors, Uh, and that's where is experienced by a lot of believers there. So if you're a Christian, opportunities are shut to you. You're going to find it harder to go to university. You won't get loans as easily. Uh, All of these different things. Much more of a squeeze approach. We're going to make it really difficult without making it illegal. But don't be deceived. There is a war going on for our souls here in the West too. And it's no less real just because we're not being rounded up like Christians in North Korea are. Rather, it's a different kind of warfare. Whereas that might be really obvious kind of warfare, I guess the closest analogy to what it's like in the West is probably more like a cyber warfare. Don't see it. It's not obvious. It's not like Ukraine. It's much more behind the scenes. Uh, theologians often talked about three enemies of the soul being the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is, the, the enemy that's around us, the enemy that's within us, and the enemy that's above us. Uh, and John Mark Comer uh, explains that spiritual warfare consists of deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And so for us here now, the, the battle is mainly focused in our thoughts and in our values. Whether it's the constant search for the identity in ourselves, the materialism that just pervades absolutely everything, or the twisting of God's love into this uncritical affirmation of any desire that we have. And so, I guess application number one is just this. Do you recognize yourself as being involved in a spiritual war. How might that understanding shape your attitudes, your prayer life, your use of money, etc.? And where are the battles raging for you at the moment? What are some of the subtle lies of the culture that we need to be alert to and test by the standards of God's words? So let's move on to the second uh, point, that the battle's already won. So verse 9, and... uh, Verse 9 of Daniel's vision takes a marked turn. 
Daniel goes from staring into the abyss of human evil, which is represented by these four terrifying beasts, to a front row seat in the throne room of Almighty God. Daniel's vision takes him from a, in an instant from the heart of darkness into the blazing center of the sun. And the message is profound, that whatever is happening, whatever evil is happening in the visible earthly realm is not all that there is. That there is an invisible heavenly reality that stands in judgment above it all. What we see, what we hear, what we feel is not the whole story. Behind the evil machinations of these four ferocious empires is a throne on which is sat the Ancient of Days. Kings may come and go here on earth. He has never left his throne since the beginning of the universe. He is the king whose reign is eternal. And so let's take a look at how this king is described. And so the thing I want you to notice, first of all, is that the evil human empires are described as horrifying, monstrous animals. But the Ancient of Days and the One Like a Son of Man are both pictured in human-like terms. That's not an accident. After all, uh, in Genesis 1, Right at the beginning of the Bible, we're told that God created humanity in his image. But evil dehumanizes us. It makes us less than fully human. It distorts our soul. It twists us and bends us out of shape. And so it's not accidental that the one to whom is given authority, glory, and sovereign power is one like a son of man, that is, a human. God's plan from the beginning has always been to exercise his rule in the earth through humans. That's what he says as soon as uh, humans are created. The first commands he gives them is rule. He makes us to be kings and queens of his creation. And next I want you to pay attention to the way that the Ancient of Days is described. So listen uh, again, if you've got your Bible open, follow along with me. Verses 9 and 10. (coughs) Excuse me. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Now, I don't want you to get too carried away thinking that this is a passport photo of God. That's not the point. But the point of the vision is to say, so you're impressed by these beasts, are you? Catch a look of this one who's on the throne. You're impressed by this lion-eagle hybrid? Take a look at the Ancient of Days. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he majestic? Shouldn't our knees knock before him? And so that's another question I want to invite you to consider this morning. 
How big is your God? Is your God like Daniel's God? Is he resplendent in dazzling light? Does he make the sun look pale in comparison to him? Is he burning with pure holiness such that a river of fire flows out from before him? Is he the captivating center of your gaze, let alone millions of gazes? How big is your God? Do you fear him? Do you have a healthy sense of reverence for his power, his purity, his perfection? Back to the text. So we, let's pick up uh, second half of verse 11. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. So do you see what it's saying? It's saying that the battle has already been won. The demise of these hideous beasts is already assured. Uh, Biblical scholar Tremper Longman writes this. He says, In a word, though human evil thrives in the present, God is in control and will have the final victory. Hallelujah! Yes, we're in a battle. Evil is real, and it is a present danger in the world. But it's not a match for God. In spite of appearances, God is still on the throne and the powers of destruction will themselves be destroyed. And I want you to notice something else in verse 12. That although the beasts are doomed, they were allowed to live for a period of time. What that means is that these beasts are on a short leash. Although they oppose God, God isn't opposed by them. They are under his ultimate authority. And what we see is that God's victory takes place in stages. God strips the beasts of their authority, but allows them to be an ongoing presence in the world until his purposes have been fully worked out. And so it is with us as well, this side of the cross. Jesus has defeated sin and death by dying on the cross and rising again. But as we all know, sin and death continue to be present realities in our world. They're real, but ultimately they're now rendered powerless to believers. So the next kind of application is just to ask this. Are you living in light of God's final victory? Do you know that the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in is a one-sided contest? That we're fighting a battle that Christ has already won. And how might knowing the ending of the story help you to remain faithful amid the challenges you face here and now today? So let's move on to our third and final point this morning. God's kingdom is the ultimate reality. 
So the final thing that Daniel sees in his vision is one like a son of man, a human, riding on the clouds of heaven, approaching the Ancient of Days, being led into his presence, then being given authority, glory, and sovereign power before receiving the worship of people from every tribe and language on the face of the earth. This mysterious figure rides to the rescue of those who are oppressed by the beastly kingdoms of the world. And so the question is... Who is he? Well, he's human. That's what the Aramaic phrase, Baranash, son of man, means. But he's also worshipped. Something that the Jews reserve for God alone. And what's more, wherever the cloud-riding image is used elsewhere in the Bible, so if you want to, you can chase it up in Psalm 68, Psalm 103, Isaiah 19, Nahum chapter 1. Look at all of those. Who's the only person that ever rides a cloud? God. So, what are we looking at here? We're looking at a man who is also God. Anyone know any of the, anyone that matches that description? If this re- isn't ringing bells for you, it really should. Now, what is Jesus' favorite way of speaking about himself in the Gospels? Son of man. In fact, it's, it's actually, uh, this passage is actually the passage that ends up getting him killed. Okay, so he's arrested. He's put on trial for blasphemy before the supreme religious court called the Sanhedrin. Then he's asked whether or not he's the Messiah. He says, you've said so. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Where's he getting that from? Here, Daniel 7. And what did the Sanhedrin do? They're furious. Why are they furious? Because they know he's claiming to be God. This isn't just a human. This is a God-man. They are spitting, hopping mad. And so hundreds of years ahead of time, Daniel has a vision of King Jesus sat on the throne of heaven with people of every tribe and tongue bowing before him in worship. And what Daniel sees is that God's ultimate victory will be achieved through a God-man. And what's more, unlike each of the beastly empires that come and go, his kingdom is forever. Verse 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What those who sat in judgment of Jesus didn't realize is that they were judging the judge of the whole world. They didn't get that the cross was God's great victory, the place where sin and death do their worst, but through the resurrection are stripped of their power. Shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, uh, you can find the story in Acts uh, chapter 7. He's, uh, he defends himself before the, the same court that convicted Jesus, the Sanhedrin. 
And as he comes towards the conclusion of his defense, uh, the author of Acts, Luke, tells us that full of the Holy Spirit, he looked heavenwards, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And what did the Sanhedrin do? Started killing him. And isn't it a tragic irony that the very religious leaders who were the inheritors of Daniel's vision should end up being the ones who wear the mask of the beast? But what emboldened Stephen to remain faithful to Jesus, even in the face of such overwhelming opposition? A glimpse of Jesus upon the throne. John Lennox writes this. He says, The only thing that can steady the mind and steal the heart of believers to face all the forces that anti-God brutality can muster is a steady vision of the one to whom is given all power on earth and in heaven and who will one day return to the planet that rejected him. Life in exile is tough. The opposition is real. But what makes it endurable is the kingdom vision that comes by faith, where we see King Jesus upon the throne having already won the battle for us. Well, how can we be sure of Jesus' victory? How do we know that this isn't just wishful thinking? Because the battle's already been won. Jesus won the victory over Satan at the cross. The apostle Paul writes this, he, that is Jesus, forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made us public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So whether the beast attacks us by throwing us into an Iranian prison cell or by persuading us to believe the lie that truth is found within, the risen Jesus reigns as king today. Hallelujah. And so, application number four. Do you have a vision of King Jesus upon the throne? already victorious over the powers of evil in the world? Do you have the eyes of faith given by the Spirit to see what Stephen saw before his death? An open heaven and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And how might you live your life differently if you did have that kind of vision? A couple of centuries after Stephen, another great man of God, a man called Augustine of Hippo, had a vision. He said this. He said, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. In the one, the princes and the nations it subdues are ruled by the love of ruling. 
In the other, the princes and the subjects serve one another in love, the latter obeying, while the former take thought for all. So I want to finish this morning by asking you, which one of those is your home city? To which do you belong? Where is your citizenship? We may live in the earthly city, but the people of God are exiles, foreigners, strangers there. Because as Paul says, our citizenship is, finish it, oh goodness, okay, some remedial work to do there, in heaven. It's sometimes possible to be dual citizens of two countries at once, but not here. In order for us to become citizens of the heavenly city, we must renounce citizenship of the earthly city. We can be resident aliens, we can be permanent residents in the earthly city, but we can't be dual citizens. We can't love self to the contempt of God and love God to the contempt of self. Those two things don't go together. Simply put, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And so if you want to find out which city you're a citizen of, here's how to do it. Look at who's on the throne of your life. And by which I don't mean who you think is on the throne of your life or who you say is on the throne of your life, but who you love, who you look towards, who you obey. So Louis Giglio writes this. He says, Worship is our response to what we value most. Whatever is worth most to you is what you worship. How do you know what you worship? It's easy. Simply follow the trail of your time, your affections, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whomever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. Who or what is on your throne? Can I suggest as we respond to God's word, let's, if you're able, let's stand. Uh, we're going to sing in a moment, but let's just take a moment to respond to God's word. So please do stand if you can. And let me just invite, uh, invite us, we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit just to, to speak to us. And if there's anything in particular that he wants us to hear this morning, just to make that clear to us. Uh, you might want to just put hands out in front of you and, uh, like this, just as a way of kind of showing that you're open to receiving whatever he has for you. There's nothing magic in it. It's just uh, a sign of being open to him. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, speak to us. So there may be some here today who has have been listening, become aware that they're not citizens of the heavenly city at the moment. 
And if that's you, there is an invitation today to become a city, a citizen of the heavenly city. For others, perhaps you know that Jesus is on the throne, but you have trouble seeing it. Perhaps the the evil of the world around you is more real to you than the victory of Jesus. In which case, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to give you the same vision that Stephen had, to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning in glory above the chaos. And finally, I sense that there might be some here today who maybe need to repent of a domesticated view of God. Perhaps you've lost sight of the glory of God as the one who shines brighter than the sun, the one from whom flows a white-hot, burning lake of holy fire. And maybe for you, the Lord is calling you into a new, renewed sense of awe and wonder at who he is. So Holy Spirit, come minister to us, we pray, in this moment. So we're going to sing again in in just a moment. As we do that, um, please do feel free just to, if there's anything on your heart, either something that God is speaking to you now or something that you came in carrying, uh, our prayer chapel is here, it's open. There'll be members of our prayer ministry team available, available to speak with you and pray with you. Please do take advantage of that opportunity if it'd be helpful. But let's worship God in song together.